In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. We have the tools, we know what to do. It's a matter of money, it's a matter of policy, it's a matter of political commitment, and we can get there. In today's episode, we spoke with Monica Gandhi. Last fall, the International AIDS Society announced that Dr. Monica Gandhi, professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, will serve as a San Francisco co-chair of the AIDS 2020 conference. Dr. Gandhi is a renowned AIDS researcher and physician who serves as the medical director of the HIV clinic at San Francisco General Hospital Ward 86. She discusses why she made AIDS research the centerpiece of her career and the story behind the conference's theme of resilience. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. Dr. Gandhi, what exactly does a local chair of an international conference of this scope, especially when it's come back to San Francisco and Oakland for the first time in 30 years. What do you do? What does a local chair do? <laughs> um, the local chair, I think, is responsible for multiple things. One is that we're interfacing with international aid society. So um, trying to bring what's happening at the Geneva level to what's happening locally. The second is to make sure that the local community does have a voice in the meeting. And so this is going to be held in our two cities. And so we um, want to ensure that representation from both cities and the disparities in both cities are represented. The third, I think, is also to represent the United States in the meeting and all the disparities that are going on in the United States with the epidemic um, in the South and Southeast. And then the fourth is to be responsible for um, ensuring that the global viewpoint will always be represented, but that we also help represent it. So it's everything from local to global. So you're really you're doing a balancing job because you have to balance the two cities first of all. Yes. Why is it important to have both Oakland and San Francisco when you're balancing an international conference? I think it's very important to have both San Francisco and Oakland because. In a way, they represent disparities within one region. Uh, they're essentially, if you look at the incidence of HIV in this country, it is um, not decreasing among men who have sex with men, and specifically the group that's most affected are Latino and black mm-hmm. MSM. And so um, those disparities are represented in the Bay Area itself. Oakland, um, predominantly, the epidemic is one that affects racial and ethnic minorities and women. And then San Francisco, definitely there's disparities within the city, but San Francisco in general, there's um, white MSM are doing better in terms of accessing treatment and prevention. So the disparities that are represented by the two cities themselves are a microcosm of what is happening countrywide, the South and Southeast. African-Americans, uh, again, are more affected and women, and it's um, there's definitely more heterosexual spread in the South and Southeast. And so it's, it's as if the Oakland, San Francisco region, we need to highlight what's going on 
that's disparate in this country, then we need to highlight and take up the um, banner of what's happening in the South and Southeast and among micro communities in the South and Southeast. And then that actually reflects what's happening worldwide, which is that some countries are doing great and some countries aren't doing as well. And a lot of it has to do with global disparities and poverty and rich and poor and policy. And so all of it is sort of reflecting each other. I want to bring in my colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison. Steve, you've talked a lot about the disparity in local communities in San Francisco and Oakland, um, but you've also been focused on the global situation. Can you tell us a little bit about the global situation and how you see it um, coming into AIDS 2020? Well, this is a very difficult period right now in terms of the epidemic, uh, the financing and political commitment is, is up in the air. This particular year, we're having the global fund replenishment uh, and there's concern that the epidemic in Eastern Europe and Russia is is unarrested and underprioritized in the response. We know that there's the same concerns that exist in the United States in terms of getting access to key populations are at play in Southern and Eastern Africa, uh, along with the particular problems that we face in dealing with adolescent girls and young women which remain a, a central concern in the global AIDS response. U.S. leadership, we need to remind ourselves, and this comes back to San Francisco and Oakland and AIDS 2020, the U.S. government accounts for three out of every four dollars that's spent uh, and in donor funding internationally on HIV AIDS. So the U.S. leadership stake is enormous. And this was another argument in favor of bringing the conference back to the United States. Remember. It was away for 22 years uh, up until 2012 because of the HIV ban that had been imposed by Senator Helms and, and, and upheld over those years. It was, it was President Obama who removed that, made it possible for the conference to come back to Washington in 2012. The decision taken in 2020 to bring it to, to California, to the Bay Area, was in my mind a great decision, if, if only to reaffirm U.S. leadership and remind the American people of our role globally, but also to put the attention back on the domestic and, and the, uh, epidemic. And now that the Trump administration at the State of the Union address rolled out this major new initiative, that changes the context a little bit more. Um, Monica, you, here you are in this leadership position, uh, which is very political, uh, I would think. When you're thinking ahead over the next year and a few months before we get to this conference, what are the things that, that keep you awake at night when you're thinking about this? I think um, what keeps me awake at night about this meeting is the importance of doing it right and of essentially highlighting successes without um, applauding too much that uh, we are not yet there. So the other reason that San Francisco and Oakland was chosen is not just to highlight the disparities in those two cities. San Francisco has been, um, in general, an incredible model for the nation in terms of the treatment and prevention of HIV. And it is exciting to live there and be in HIV medicine. I specifically, from medical school onward, only wanted to be in San Francisco um, to, to work on HIV because that was my interest from actually a very young age. And it was because the commitment in the city to the epidemic is unprecedented. We will have Ryan White care cuts by HRSA, and the city will backfill those cuts. The supervisors, the mayor, they are interested 
in the epidemic because the history of the city is bound up with the history of the epidemic. The city responded. And because of that, um, San Francisco is a model in many ways. So, for example... Speaking of the End the HIV Epidemic initiative that was announced by um, President Trump in the State of the Union address, but expounded upon by um, Bob Redfield and Anthony Fauci in weeks subsequent, um, when Dr. Fauci came to Croy and showed the HIV community in Seattle what this ETHE or End the HIV Epidemic initiative entailed, he showed the city of San Francisco. He showed data from the city of San Francisco as models of what we're trying to achieve nationwide in terms of reduction in new HIV infections, um, startup of uh, uh, HIV therapy immediately upon HIV diagnosis, so-called rapid, and increasing um, access to pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. And he showed um, San Francisco's model as an example of what we want to achieve in these 48 counties, seven states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, the places that are going to be uh, receive funding to try to reduce the HIV epidemic in these high incidence places. So it is important to acknowledge that San Francisco has thought a lot and deeply about how to affect the epidemic. And it's a privilege to work there in HIV medicine as a result. And I think that will be highlighted at the meeting. There's a lot of great things going on in San Francisco, obviously. There's a lot of technology, obviously, in the area. How are you going to enlist tech's help in not just your everyday treatment of the disease, but how are you going to enlist tech to help deal with this conference? Yeah, that's a very excellent question about tech because um, there is going to be a major logistical challenge in that um, the meeting will be in two cities. And these two cities there is a, you know, the bay in between them. <laughs> um, and, Not so and there's easy to get bridge, back and forth. And there's, and there's Bard in between them. And so I think we will be using absolutely technology um, to have people choose where they're going to be that day and then see the broadcast of the meeting um, in the other city if main activities are occurring in the other city. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to absolutely use um you know, broadcast and technology that way. Uh, And I think that even now, as we're doing the local planning, we're bringing a lot of Zoom technology and all this technology to bring ourselves together. Because are we going to be hologramming people? Are yeah. we going to? I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. I don't. I don't think we've like in San Francisco. I don't think we know how to like make three dimensional, um, you know, a transporter yet. But I think that we will do as much as we can right. <laughs> to use the technology there to right. to make it seem like you're actually in the other city, even if you're sitting in one city during the meeting. Do you right. believe that the uh, tech firms are going to embrace HIV in a new, new and different way? They haven't been very, very engaged uh, up to this point. Yeah, that is also a great question. So the other thing that can happen when you're hosting the biggest global health meeting um, in a place is that you do a lot of preparation ahead of time to go to these firms and say, hey, let's talk about HIV and how you can help with this huge meeting. And by the way, continue helping in an ongoing fashion um, with the HIV epidemic. You're absolutely right that the major tech firms have not been traditionally involved in HIV. You don't think of them 
there are certain corporations that you think of as supporting the HIV enterprise and um, not the tech companies in San Francisco. So part of the meeting is to install a local secretariat of the international AIDS meeting. And part of their job is to go and talk to everyone. So let's see what happens. I hope so. Um, I think you're absolutely right that we're at a time in the global commitment to HIV where it's not completely clear that it's going to absolutely go the way that it needs to. We already knew quite a long time ago what it would take on a yearly basis to do the two very simple things that would take to end the HIV epidemic, which is to treat everyone living with HIV and also to prevent HIV in those at risk with sort of a mop-up with pre-exposure prophylaxis. We know how to end the epidemic. We have the tools. That's the entire point of ending the HIV epidemic and even the global AIDS response. We have the tools. We know what to do. It's a matter of money. It's a matter of policy. It's a matter of political commitment, and we can get there. And so hopefully what this meeting would do and all these meetings would do would highlight for us um, that we need more commitment to actually get to the finish line. Can tech help you with the money, with logistics, with all that? And are they aware that they can help? I really want them to help. Um, The one issue in San Francisco that has created disparities within the city itself is the presence of the tech industry. We have a very severe um, homeless problem and right next to the headquarters of these major tech companies that are downtown. Well, yeah, and you even have teachers who teach in public schools who can't live in the city where they teach. Exactly. And so tech has, maybe some people will say they've been a boon to San Francisco, and they have in some way, but they haven't been a boon um, in the way that they have contributed to the disparity problem. And so I would consider it, um, hopefully, uh, this is something that they could get around when they're approached which they absolutely will be and are being approached. Hopefully they will get around the HIV response and um, invest. It's actually not just about HIV. The uh, entire point of the international AIDS meeting is also to raise awareness for other um, global health uh, problems. And so TB always comes along with HIV. um, And in general, um, part of the fact that it's the biggest global health conference is to raise awareness for all of the neglected diseases. So what, what would success to you look like for this conference? To me, success would look like the Global Fund and PEPFAR and the and the regional, um, meaning countrywide response to HIV, being bolstered by this meeting. So the U.S. and international communities raise awareness and people essentially putting into these pots of money that we already know work. So the Global Fund works, PEPFAR works, and uh, I hope the ending of the HIV epidemic will work. It's too new to say. Um, and a renewed attention and renewed funding and renewed excitement about funding and ending HIV. We are such in a different place than we were 30 years ago, where um, I wasn't there 30 years ago, but the meeting was um, essentially many activists just coming into the meeting and saying, do something, do something. And right. um, we absolutely absolutely now have the tools. It's so amazing to be in HIV medicine. It's such a privilege to be an HIV clinician for me um, because I have so much optimism. I have so many medicines. I have so many tools. I can absolutely change lives for my patients, but we need the political commitment and the milieu to change to be able to essentially allow access to all of these technologies and all of these advances for everyone in the country and everyone in the world. We need renewed political commitment for people who are LGBT community, who are transgender, who are um, uh, sex workers, who are use drugs. Um, All of these key populations need to be 
there needs to be less stigma, there needs to be more attention, there needs to be an openness and transparency around bringing these tools to these populations. On the question of uh, what would success look like, in 2012 and 2011, leading up to 2012, we debated out these same issues and there was a great concern at that time, and I think it's still true, to make sure that the bipartisanship be very visible and uh, also that the faith community be an active participant faith community had stayed sometimes at a distance from these conferences. And I think we made significant progress, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, both the bipartisan, how are we going to make sure we have full face of that, including with the Bush family in some way incorporated. Now, with the Trump administration, we've got a mixed picture, right? We have, on the one hand, the State of the Union address, the new plan. Uh, it's a good plan. It's a great team that's put it together. Bob Redfield, Tony Fauci, John O'Merman, and others, it's a really s tremendous team putting this plan together. I think Congress will support it in the early days. So we have that story to tell, which changes the context. But we also have all of the tensions around migration and immigration and, and rhetoric and anti-California rhetoric and the like. So we, that you're going to have to navigate that difficult terrain. Um, we've already you know, been exploring some of the fears that people have around migration, which sometimes get exaggerated in terms of, we'll have four to 5,000 people coming to this conference from overseas. So we need to make sure that those who are coming are, are confident, uh, they know what the process is, they, they are treated fairly and equitably, and that the machinery of our government is, is doing everything possible to get them to the conference. Yes. I mean, I think it's a very interesting time to have this meeting before, I will say that before the announcement of the end of the HIV epidemic, which just occurred um, in early February, uh, it, there was more opposition, I think, to the holding the meeting in the United States. And that was because what you just described the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration was in general not very supportive of key populations. So LGBT, transgender, and especially immigrants to this country. And all of that rhetoric was really negative and depressing and not uh, very hopeful for those of us who have been working against the stigma uh, for those populations for our entire careers. And then the ending the HIV epidemic got announced and that has been extremely positive because I don't know exactly what it will look like and I don't know if it'll achieve its goals exactly, but I think it's a very exciting and promising way to get there. And it's um, actually really interesting in terms of the marriage of research with service uh, that's been proposed. And that's why the NIH, as part of the HHS and CDC and HRSA and Indian Health Services are all for involved. It's really a trans HHS uh, initiative. So that has been extremely positive. So hopefully we could take heart from this. I think we have all taken heart from this. And by the time we get to July 2020, we'll see a little bit about what the HIV epidemic is looking like over the first year and a half of its progress. And I think we'll be able to tout that. But there's no question that the entire point of anyone who goes into HIV medicine, and this was my reasoning as well, is all I wanted to do was fight um, this sort of stigma. All I, I grew up in a pretty um, conservative state. I grew up in Utah. I was born and raised there. I'm Indian. I was of color. I grew up in the public school system. Everyone was white except for myself and my brother and sister. I felt marginalized. I felt really alone. I felt really stigmatized. And I felt sort of 
lonely, actually, growing up in Utah. And all I wanted to do was think about, okay, how can I take what I felt as a child and what I learned as a child, part of which was being resilient and part of it was getting out of the state um, when I went to medical school, but how can I take what I learned and work for communities who also feel stigmatized and lonely and different and are told that they're different and told that they're different not in a good way. And so all I wanted to do was, in medicine, work with communities who feel ostracized. And what was most obvious to me, which is to work in HIV, and I also loved infectious diseases, and so that's what made me go into infectious diseases. And then I was at Harvard for medical school, and I just wanted to get to San Francisco, because I knew San Francisco, for me, was this kind of place where all these political movements had started, and I knew what they thought about and did for HIV. And so then I got there, and I learned a lot, and um, the tech community has changed things in the city. But what hasn't changed is this, I think, place. It, it, San Francisco is still a place, whereas pretty much still a haven for LGBT communities or for transgender individuals who come from the places where I grew up um, and come to San Francisco to feel different, to feel better, to feel more accepted. And so all of this is incredibly important to have in the dialogue of the meeting is you can't actually change things without changing the rhetoric towards that communities. And I'm hoping that will change even in a bipartisan way as we go forward. How are you going to try to tell that story at the, because it's an incredibly powerful story. And as a lot of people point out to us as we're doing this podcast, despite the treatment, the stigmas do really still exist. Yes. How are you going to try to bring this across? This is going to be a big part of the meeting. The theme has been chosen for the meeting, and it's a single word, which is resilience. And the word resilience is referring um, to many things. It's the resilience of the scientific response and to um, knowledge and how quickly things moved and progressed in HIV medicine. But it also is around taking these experiences of feeling ostracized, being resilient to them, and figuring out how to help others. One thing about stigma, um, and this is true in general, and it's not really about just HIV, is that unless stigmatized groups help each other, then everyone's in their whole silos. And one thing that has happened in HIV a little bit more than other fields, but not always, is that in general, groups um, connect with each other. So it's um, not just MSM, uh, MS, it's MSM linking with transgender uh, communities, linking with um, people who use drugs. And in general, we've had a pretty good um, harmony across these groups. Um, I think we are going to talk about that more and how you don't want to just represent your own interests, which um, end up not being as unifying and as powerful. And so we had to get back to advocacy going back 30 years when the meeting was first there. We had to get back to advocacy at a unified level to talk about stigma in general. In a way, it's actually a good time in U.S. history to talk about stigma because the rhetoric that has come out is... Um, sort of um, nonspecific. The rhetoric is, is against different groups, African-Americans, uh, immigrants, um, Latina, uh, Latinos, uh, LGBT communities. And so that rhetoric kind of being evenly distributed may make the key populations, all of our key populations work together to combat stigma as a whole, as opposed to just combat stigma in their own community. So I think it is going to be a big part of this um, meeting. So a real resilience campaign. Yeah, it's, yeah, resilience. It's a single theme word, and I think it's really powerful. I agree. May I ask you just one more personal question. I mean, you've had a remarkable career. You've had remarkable longevity in the commitment to HIV over the course of your entire career. 
That's something that you see repeated among many different people, and this is a field that is really, it's a very pronounced trend in this field. When you look at yourself, Deborah Burks, Tony Fauci, Bob Redfield, I mean, you, the people that made a commitment 35 years ago and have stuck with it. So the two questions are, why, why is that happening for you personally, but as a broader phenomenon in this field? And how do you, you've given a, a lot of energy and thought and effort to trying to recruit uh, and sustain the next generation mm -hmm. of HIV leaders as biomedical researchers, as clinicians, as, as advocates. Tell us a little bit about that too, because that is so important. But the first question is, this phenomenon of longevity and commitment over decades. Yes. I mean, I think it is HIV for me and for many other uh, people who have been in it for a long time is it is fascinating because it overlays science with the human condition, with politics with disparities between rich and poor, with policy, it is so many layers to HIV that it is constantly important and relevant and stimulating. I always um, say that I am overstimulated all the time by the by <laughs> HIV. It is always changing. As a good example, um, I will give talks on HIV medicine, and I'm giving a couple of talks at different meetings this spring. I cannot use the same talk, even if it's a week old. That's how quickly paradigms shift in HIV. That's how fast moving it is and how exciting and relevant it is. So it is constantly interesting and important. It speaks to aspects of the human condition from what I was talking about before, about loneliness and stigma and policy and just literally as simple as there are disparities in this world between rich and poor that could absolutely be fixed, that, um, that have been created by human policy. And it speaks to those those like very macro levels and then very micro levels. And so it's just amazingly, rivetingly important to be in HIV in medicine. So I don't think people leave it readily, at least if you're an HIV clinician or if you're an HIV researcher or if you're an HIV advocate. Um, in terms of the next generation, I have had some really great experiences being mentored in HIV and then some really bad experiences. And it made me start thinking about mentoring and and um, how to bring up the next generation of HIV investigators. I specifically, you're right, mentor in two ways, um, in biomedical research and also in being a clinician. And these experiences, it's like I've had good parents and bad parents. And, you know, sometimes when you've had bad parents, it makes you want to, like, study parenting and think about how to be a better parent. And so <laughs> I had a really uh, bad experience that made me, like, want to study the phenomenon of mentoring and how to be a better mentor. And, um, and I think that mentoring, no matter what, has to have some element of altruism. It can't just be a reciprocal relationship. And so I'm interested in teaching techniques, uh, kind of specialized tools and techniques of more effective mentoring. I'm also very, very interested in the diversity of the HIV biomedical and clinician workforce. Mm -hmm. This is a disease that um, in general tends to affect a very disparate and uh, population. And we can't have the research workforce and the clinician workforce be homogeneous. And so I'm very interested in working with young investigators who are um, from underrepresented groups, black, Latino, disabled, um, and from poor socioeconomic backgrounds, and thinking about techniques to bring up people in these groups to work on the HIV response. 
It's very interesting, actually. We don't earn a lot of money as HIV doctors. You actually take a pay cut from being a primary care doctor if you're an HIV doctor. So you have to, you truly have to have an element of just desperately wanting to do it to be, um, it's not uh, remunerated that well. Um, and, and because of that, we, it's been very interesting discussions about who comes into the HIV workforce and who wants to be in it. So yeah, I'm interested in all those issues. And a lot of it came from my upbringing and just feeling different and wanting to work with groups who also feel different and celebrate the differences and not feel lonely because you're different. It's great that you're in this position and thank you for sharing the San Francisco side of this equation. It's, it's terrific. Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. Please subscribe and write a review wherever you listen to your podcast so that more people can find us. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. To find out more about the AIDS 2020 conference, visit AIDS2020.org.